Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are still in the Gospels. This is Gospels number 15. In the previous episode, we sort of walked away from the story of John the Baptist periodically, and we started looking at uh, Jesus as he was calling out uh, some of his disciples, meeting them, and specifically one of the phrases that comes to mind for me is him inviting the disciples to come and learn or come and see uh, and what that entails for their lives and a rabbi and student relationship. And now we're about to jump into the story of Jesus going to a wedding. That's right. Yeah, and uh, just to make the point, it wasn't so much he was calling them out. They just were kind of gathering to him. It's kind of an interesting take on it. And that's uh, it's going to make the story a little bit uh, confusing or interesting, however you want to say that, when we get to the other gospels. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah, let's go to a wedding. <laughs> Where are we at in the text? Well, we are still in the book of John. We're at chapter 2, verse 1. Here we go. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. All right. So, uh, number one, on the third day. Remember how we've been kind of noticing that John was saying the next day, the next day, on the third day. This is John sort of giving us that daily account of his first week in ministry. So that's always interesting to note. And then uh, maybe we should just recap for a second. Who all do we have in this little party? Uh, Obviously, we don't know everybody at the wedding, but, you know, the Jesus entourage. We've got Mary. Jesus, Peter, and Andrew, and then we have sort of the anonymous disciple, which we're believing is John, the writer, and we've got Philip and Nathanael. So that's our group. We're good with that? Yeah. All right. Now, (laughs) this is going to get fun. That's right. (laughs) Here we go. So, verse three, when the wine ran out... The mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. <laughs> so, <laughs> this, this, okay, number one, stop for a second. Where are we? We're in first century uh, Israel. This is this is so far removed from everything we know and understand, but just know that in this place at this time, running out of wine at a wedding, this was like a social catastrophe, total embarrassment. And so you can imagine, and we don't know this, was this more an acquaintance of Mary and Jesus or was this a close friend? Eh, we don't know, but you can definitely understand how a Jew of this time who who has a friend in this situation, she wanted to jump in and help, jump in and save them, right? 
She didn't want there to be a social catastrophe. She didn't want them to be embarrassed. So she turns to Jesus, they have no wine. And anybody who's ever been in a situation like that, you know, you're kind of sitting there going, well, what am I supposed to do? What are you telling me for, right? Which, I mean, Jesus kind of responds that way, but we'll talk about that in a second. So another thing we need to remember, though, now that we've entered into this part of the story, Joseph is gone. It, it, we, we all assume that he has died sometime between when Jesus was 12 and, and now. And so Jesus has been, for some period of time, we don't know how long, but he has been the man of the house. And why was that, Samuel? Well, that's the Jewish tradition of a Badov where your firstborn son continues the legacy of the father in every aspect of his life. Whenever that father dies, the son takes up that calling. That's right. He is now the leader of the house because he was the firstborn son. And so now you have to now that you've got that in your head, then you have to stop and think, well, okay, why was Mary turning to him? Now, there's a number of possibilities. We can't truly know, but let's just think about a few things. She could, she could have been thinking about this in a completely uh, ordinary kind of way, right? Just, this is just what people, to do, what people do. She's looking to her son, the man of the house, and she's thinking, hey, you're here. You got a bunch of your friends here. You know what? Why don't you quickly run out and, and get some wine and, and just bring it back in? Why don't you save them? from this embarrassment. That could have been. She also, I mean, just from the text, we have zero indication that Jesus has done any kind of miracle. And so the question is, did she expect Jesus to do something miraculous? Because, I mean, to be honest, when you read it, do you not kind of get that sense, Samuel? Get the sense that she's expecting something miraculous? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't think so. I mean, if we're just looking at the text directly, and then especially, I don't know. That That's a really good question. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard, right? You, 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 it's hard to see what Mary's expectation really is. And then you even have to wonder, well, gosh, I mean... If she was expecting something, let's say at the very least, out of the ordinary, had she seen Jesus do something before? You know, growing up as uh, when he was a child, those kind of things. We don't know, but maybe. Now, again, we have zero indication in the text. No miracles until the baptism. And in fact, I would say even outside biblical text, we just don't really have those kind of indicators. So, okay, as we are telling the story here in this podcast, we're going, yeah, you know, as far as we know, no miracles until after his baptism, like where we are now. We don't know that we know that we know, but it's, you know, it's a real thing. But the other possibility is, what has Mary been doing all along since even the announcement of his conception birth, all of that. What's she been doing with all this info about Jesus, her son? She's been treasuring it, uh, meditating on it, keeping it in her heart. Exactly. And so then you also have to go, well, 
even if she didn't have any real life experience, did she have enough of a grasp of the whole situation? Did she witness the baptism or uh, certainly she must have known about it? Did somebody, did she see the Holy Spirit fall? Did somebody tell her about the, right? Is she now making assumptions about what he is capable of? And we don't really know, but it's, this is the beauty of the scripture. So often they will tell these stories and they leave these humongous gaps in the details. And I, honestly, I think they do it on purpose. I think they want us to consider what was actually going on. Who knew what? What was she really expecting? Yeah, I've never considered these questions before, so it's pretty illuminating to replay this story, this biblical story in my mind, and think about those contextual details, especially between Jesus and his mother. Yeah. It's kind of like when you're watching a movie and they offer alternate endings. Yeah. (laughs) As you're reading through the story, a lot of times we need to just, you know what, slow down. Pause for a second and think about all the alternate scenes, if you will. And, and I don't know. It's very interesting. You can't always come up with an answer like, well, I know this is what happens. Sometimes you can if you just really put your mind to it. Mm-hmm. But other times you just you can't and you're left wondering. But it's it's interesting and fun. And I think it actually enriches the story. But then, OK, we have to address this. Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? All right. So when he says woman, and maybe the way I read it made it worse, but Jesus isn't being disrespectful. I mean, at the very least, this was just a normal address. Mary wouldn't have been offended. The people sitting around wouldn't have been offended. Nobody would have even noticed. It was just normal talk. And there are some scholars that even suggest it wasn't just normal, it was a term of endearment. So if it's hitting you a little bit funny when you hear Jesus talking to his mom like that, slow down, recognize different time, different place, different people. And it's actually, I mean, this is is an endearment, right? Term of endearment. Yeah. I actually have a, maybe a potential quick little nugget about that, if you don't mind me Do it. playing it out a bit. If we go to the creation narrative, and spe- specifically the creation of woman, because that's what came to my mind when I heard that word, and ah. the Hebrew word in Genesis two twenty three, the Hebrew word for woman is isha, and that's really cool because the Hebrew word for man is ish. So you can see that right. play on words of, you know, one was taken out of man to create woman and ish and yeah. isha are similar. And that's different than whenever Adam named woman Eve in Genesis, at the end of Genesis 3. And there's this Jewish teaching that before the fall, Adam was enamored with who woman was like who she was created to be yeah based on that name and then whenever he named her eve which means like mother of living mother of all things alive he he transitioned uh to what she could do or what she could produce which is more of that empire egypt you know unhealthy thinking and so just in my mind it's like 
if if we were to use the Septuagint and retranslate this Greek word back to Hebrew, could we potentially see him using, you know, Isha and that, that you know, that that seems like a very respectful word to use for his mother because he's going back to the creation narrative right now and using that instead of something else. Yeah, that's yeah, that is a great picture. And I think it also just quick side note, how much uh, that just informs us, because I think, especially modern day Americans, whatever, I think that we look at other people and very much of what we see and how we judge them, the categories we put them in, it's about what they can do. And we look a little bit less at who they are. So, yeah, that's a great image. Yeah. So, again, I think Jesus is being respectful, and this is all good. So, you know, let's not put too much emphasis on that. And then he has this statement, what does this have to do with me? Which, okay, maybe, how how might we paraphrase that? It would be, what can I do? And in fact, the Greek that underlies this, it's actually more like, what has that to do with? with me and you. It really isn't so Jesus-centric. And so the question is something more like, what can we do? But then he adds this interesting part, my hour has not yet come. Now, we definitely get the general meaning of that statement. It isn't time, it's too soon, But then you still got to wonder, well, to which hour is he referring? Would this be like, you know, the hour when he is supposed to start doing miracles? Or because, okay, spoiler alert, we know that he's going to do the miracle of creating some wine or whatever. Is, Is it the hour of when, you know, wine is overflowing in the kingdom? Uh, is it the hour when people, you know, start to, to become aware that he's around and doing these things. Cause another thing, spoiler alert, Jesus is going to try to remain somewhat hidden, if you will. So stay low uh, on the radar. Right. So we don't know what, what, he, what does he even mean by my hour has not yet come, but here's, <laughs> here's the cool part. This is a part we can all relate to. Verse five, his mother said to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. (laughs) So, like any good mom, she ignores whatever resistance he tries to put up, and she just pushes him to go ahead and do whatever it is that she wants him to do. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? (laughs) This is classic. It's classic. So, Jesus, you want to think he didn't live a normal human life? There you go. (laughs) Now, so Jesus is in this position. What's he going to do? Does he push back? Whatever. And, and so, verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. Now, if this were, I don't know, maybe it's the 70s or the 80s, he would have said, they filled them to the rim with brim, the old coffee commercial. And Samuel's going, I've never heard yeah, of that. Yeah, this is what one is of that? the <laughs> Yeah, but they filled them to the brim. Okay, filled them all the way to the top. 
Now, just to point it out, how much water is that, Samuel? Can you do math? Uh, six times 20 is 120, and if it's 30, six times 30 is 180, so 120 to 180 gallons. That is a lot of water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And now, let's not overlook it. What, what are we talking about here? Stone water jars. What, what is that? Well, number one, it's very common. And why were they common? Oh, we already mentioned the Jewish rites of purification. So, um, some of that has to do with like actual Torah law kind of instruction kind of thing. Some of it has to do with uh, simpler things like, hey, washing hands before meals, etc. But these stone jars, they had the... Uh, let's call it the attractive quality of being unable to affect purity. We, we might say they were purity neutral. And so people wanted to store their water in these jars so that they couldn't uh, make the water impure and the water could still make them pure, if, if you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was just a super common thing. And wherever they are, six stone jars, they, they, boy, they were expecting a lot of people often, yeah. or whatever this was, whatever was going on. And then just just to point it out, okay, we're looking at the scene, and now we know we've got Jesus there, and we know for sure the servants, and I guess you could say they know better than anyone, these jars contain they contain water? Water. That's it. They know they contain water. Now we go to verse 8. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Can you imagine how they were feeling? Verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So, (laughs) number one, I don't know if you noticed, It tells us that the water has become wine, but they keep referring to it as water. Mm -hmm. They knew that they had drawn water, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So that's a thing. But the, the, what did they call him? The master of the feast. Boy, this was good wine. So let's stop again. And now let's think about who actually knows stuff. Who knows what's going on? What Jesus has actually done. Turning the water to wine. So Samuel, do you think Mary knew? I have, I mean, she knew that he was going to do something because she asked him to. Yeah, she's probably had her eyes on this whole thing. I'm guessing she for sure knew. How about the servants? Did they know? I mean, if they were around where those jars of water were, I would say so. Yeah, you know they did because they're, they're like featured in the story. They saw it happen. What about the disciples? Do you think they knew what happened? I mean, I'm... I'm Picturing them attached to Jesus's hip with everything he was doing. So seems like yeah. they would know. Yeah. The text doesn't really tell us that they're in and around and involved in any of this. And so you're left 
kind of wondering, and and I think like you did, assuming, well, I mean, they're probably hanging around with him. All, yeah, they probably knew. And we're going to find out as we continue that they did. But then, remember, this is a wedding. Theoretically, there's all sorts of people around. Does anybody else know? That I do not know. Yeah, we can't really tell. I mean, who knows? But the reason I'm asking this is because this is an important point. We, meaning modern day Americans, we're going to look at this story. We're going to see that a miracle has happened. And the thing that's going to go on in our brain, I think probably most consistently, is going to be something along the lines of, wow, did you see what he did? And, and maybe we think of the word power, or maybe we think of the word, um, well, what's a word that means he has control over, you know, nature or, or um, dominion. atoms, physical things. Yeah, dominion, yeah, something. Okay, that's what we think about. Wow, look at the power. He did a miracle. But I'd like to suggest that these people in this time, in this place, it wasn't quite what they did with it. I think they were more likely to look on this, not that they didn't recognize that something powerful, miraculous happened. For sure, they see that. But their tendency was going to be, wait a second, what did he actually do? And what could that possibly mean? And so, I think it's possible, even at this time, this, this early, early part of the story, I think there would have been a tendency for people to relate this to the kingdom. Because what is the thing that everybody, uh, every Jewish buddy, what is everybody expecting when the kingdom happens? Samuel, there's a big table, everybody's gathered around this presumably ginormous table and they're they're participating in what it's a great feast yeah the messianic banquet and of course what do they have along with the food wine yeah and how much wine is there an abundance yeah it's like it's like a never-ending supply so they they're going to see it they're going to recognize the the miracle the power whatever but I think they're also going to look a little deeper. They're going to look behind what they see on the surface to try to understand what is this about? What is it pointing toward? And I think many, maybe not all, but I, I think they're going to see ah, a sign of the kingdom. So that's kind of a cool thing. And then finally, if we could just note, um, you know, the thing that the master of the feast said, you kept the good wine until now. So he didn't just change the water to wine. He changed it to a mighty fine wine. (laughs) And if I can pull out references that you probably won't get, let's just say Jeremiah the bullfrog would have been proud. Hey, I know that reference. You do? Yeah. All right. Well, I got you one out of two. That's good. (laughs) Yeah, changed it to a mighty fine wine. So, and let's begin. How did this all start? This social catastrophe had happened. This was total embarrassment. Mary's response, we've got to save them. And so, of course, this certainly does. And just to to bring this back into the big picture, 
this little episode right here, it's a very good picture of what the law and the Torah lead to. It isn't about just obeying specific commands for the purpose of obeying specific commands. They lead to this kind of concern, care, empathy, whatever you want to call it, for our neighbor. So it's a beautiful picture. Beautiful picture. Yeah, all those things you said are awesome. I have a comment and then a question for you. Um, I feel like a lot of things I've read in the extra biblical texts, like the Midrash and the Talmud, the, the rabbis continually bring up that aspect of honoring someone's name or going out of your way to not disgrace someone. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's such a cultural shock to hear them talk about how they prioritize that so much in our culture. You know, we're all about, you know, revenge and retribution and just so, so much opposite you know, in comparison to doing doing things out of your normal everyday life yeah. to make sure that someone's name and reputation can be upheld, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Hey, can I give you a real quick side story on that? Heck yeah. It's one of my faves. There's a, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to blow it, but it, people will get the idea. Uh, basically, there's this guy, let's say he's a rabbi that he goes over and he visits someone's house and the wife has cooked up this big meal. The problem is... She did something wrong. I mean, she, I don't know, she added the spices twice or something, but it's, it's horrible. (laughs) She knows it. The husband knows it. Everybody knows it. But this rabbi, (laughs) in order to save her from embarrassment, not only finishes his plate, but he asks for seconds. Whoa. Just so she'll feel better not feel so bad right yeah <laughs> and i was just i'm just being honest i can't imagine myself doing that for anything <laughs> yeah that's a that is a stellar guy oh man yeah but i just love that story because yeah. you know it doesn't even matter if it's true or false or whatever it's it, it gives you flavor. such yeah <laughs> it's such a great picture of how we're to be toward one another and then you think about those those statements like um, you know, how do people recognize the church? Well, they, they know them by the love they have one for another. And then you hear stories like that and you're going, oh my gosh, we fall so short. Mm-hmm. But anyway, you said you had a comment and a question, so I can't hide from it anymore. Yeah. What's your question? So we were talking about the deeper um, pot- potential things that those that knew what Jesus was doing, what they were thinking in their minds as this was going on. Mm-hmm. Is there any chance that they were connecting the Jewish symbolism of marriage uh, with God and people going on in this particular situation? Because, you know, God married Israel at Sinai. That was a wedding. There was a, you know, uh, that was a big event. Um, and then, that you know, they know that the kingdom is going to be kind of like a wedding as well, where God is going to rejoin you know, right. with his bride, you know, the created world, uh, join himself back to his people. And so I just was wondering if they potentially were thinking about, whoa, we're at a wedding. <laughs> There's some type of abundance going on. Like, is this Messiah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, <laughs> neither you nor nor I have the, uh, 
we don't corner the market on this is what those people were thinking. Certainly, we have no idea. We're, it's all guesswork. And so, you know, what I mentioned something about the kingdom. You mentioned the wedding and how that relates to the message. Yeah, those are those are beautiful images. And to be sure, there there have to be more. Anybody who's really thinking and trying to put those pieces of the story together, they're going to see beautiful and wonderful things that we're never going to think of. And in a way, that's the beauty of these stories, these scriptures, because they leave you room to be able to, to think about those kind of things. And, and, and I, I don't use this phrase like in a negative way. They let you make stuff up so that you can create these images in your head. Now, side note, this, this uh, actually relates to something I heard from Tim Mackey over Bible Project. Mm-hmm. Um, Samuel, if you're leaving room in the story for people to fill in stuff on their own, I mean, for sure, that could be a good thing. We've tried to talk about, hey, here's some of the good things they might have been thinking or seeing, right? Does it also leave room for bad thinking? Oh, absolutely. Yes, it does. It does. So, writing the scriptures this way, writing the stories this way, all the things that we've seen, it comes with positives and negatives. And so, as ones who are trying to take in the scriptures, ones who are trying to read and understand, hey, we also need to use some caution, right? So I think your example was great, I, uh, obviously, because it was my example. I think mine's great. That's what everybody <laughs> thinks, right? But, uh, yeah, I mean, we still, we have to live with a little bit of caution as we're trying to look deeper into the scriptures. And so, you know, yeah, just, it's, just a it's good side Glad note. you brought that up. Yeah. Well, Tim Mackey brought it up. <laughs> we ought to get him on the show one day. Oh, that'd be uh, so awesome. <laughs> yeah, we're so nothing. I don't know that he would, but we never know. We could try it. Uh, anyway, let's get on. Verse 11. John says this, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay, couple of things. First of all, uh, John here specifically states that this is the first of his signs. Now, he doesn't say it's the first of his miracles, for whatever that's worth. Was this the first miracle? I don't know. I kind of read it as if it was, but we don't know. But then you even have to wonder, is John saying this is the first of his signs ever? Or is he saying this is the first of his signs that John is going to tell you about in his gospel? So, so we can't put too much weight on it. I do read this verse and I go, well, see, to me, this is just a little more evidence that, yeah, Jesus really didn't do any miracles, didn't do any signs until after his baptism. But I don't want to push that too hard. However, think about this. What was Moses' first sign? And, and maybe I should be more specific. Uh, the first plague. Uh, didn't he turn all of the water into blood it's in, in addition to the Nile itself? Yeah. The Nile, the water, uh, it all turned to blood. Jesus turns water to wine. 
if nothing else, isn't that kind of a cool little parallel? Yeah. The, the, the it, it starts with water, it changes into something else, the colors are, you know, reasonably close, that kind mm-hmm. of... I, it's hard to say that that was accidental, right? I think that's kind of cool. And then um, you have to wonder when John says, is it the first of, this is the first of his signs? Well, a sign of what? Well, it's a sign that he is, in fact, the Messiah. He's the long awaited king from the line of David, the eternal king the one who's going to rule over the kingdom that they're waiting for. This sign demonstrates power over nature on one hand, and it also uh, uh, gives us a, like a foretaste of abundant provision that they expect in the kingdom. So all of this, it's, it's foreshadowing the kingdom, therefore he's the king, and so it is a sign that he is the king of the long-awaited kingdom. That's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Then, um, I don't know, John reiterates it's done in Cana and Galilee. And I, I don't, I'm not sure why that's important enough for John to mention twice. Um, except that I guess the only thing that pops in my head is, uh, you know, Jesus is trying to stay on the down low, as it were. Um, and so Cana and Galilee, maybe that's more rural and he's, you know, trying to show how, hey, you may not have heard about this, or it was kept quiet because it was out in the sticks or something. I don't know. I don't know. But then he says that this sign, doing this sign, manifested his glory. Now, I know, uh, and, and this was great. We were talking about glory, and we tried to sort of plug in the word presence. But that was because we were relating back to God. We were trying to relate back to, well, in what other ways have we witnessed God's glory? And of course, there was, you know, in the tabernacle, that was his presence, that kind of stuff. But here, I mean, obviously, Jesus is just walking around and, and everybody's seeing him and experiencing him. And so we can't quite look at manifested his glory in the same way. So maybe we just step back a little bit and say, well, okay, what do we mean, generally speaking, when we use the word glory? And I mean, there's there's lots of stuff. You could think about, uh, I don't know, a person's riches or their importance or, or maybe they actually uh, have some sort of splendor, whether that's, you know, where they live, what they wear or something. Maybe there's, the, they, there's a real distinction about them. Some people even look at things like uh, their, their children, their family. I mean, there's a lot of things that, that we try to use the word glory for. But somehow here, John is saying that it's manifesting his glory. And so we try, we need to try to figure out, well, how? How exactly was that? Well, we've already talked about, John called it a sign. We said it's a sign of the kingdom. And, okay, I'm sorry, I don't even know if we've said this out loud before now. I I would think we would have, but maybe not. All of the miracles that we're going to see Jesus do. All of them, in some way, demonstrate an aspect of the kingdom. And this is really important to understand. You may have read your Bible a hundred times, you may have read all the things about the miracles, whatever, but it's very different when you realize 
every single miracle is done. Well, there could be multiple purposes, but one underlying purpose of all of them is to demonstrate some aspect of the kingdom. Okay? They're not they're not about demonstrating power. I mean, that obviously it is. You it, it's a real part of it and you can't ignore it. But that's not the main thrust. There is power, but it's demonstrating the kingdom, right? So uh you just have to know that beyond everything that Jesus is doing, especially when we're talking about miracles, there's this kingdom connection. And so this glory that we're talking about is the glory that we understand to come along with a king. They manifested his glory as king and not just any king, but an eternal king. Now, that may be a stretch at this early part of the, the story, if you will, but if there was anyone with a real, a real understanding of the scriptures, they may even have, have, have gone that far in their mind, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's just a, God, there's just so much packed in here. It's so hard to go through John quickly because his writing and everything he's throwing in there, it's just, it's so dense. There's so much. So yeah, anyway, you you want me to slow it down a little bit more because I have something to add. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Let's rewind just a bit and our listeners should hopefully recall that we said that the gospel actually is repent for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is here or it's at hand. Yep. And, and we said that that, that seems... Um, kind of awkward or opposite what we know about it, but Paul and I have been learning specifically from First Fruits of Zion at the beginning of the Gospels when we've learned about John the Baptist coming out of the wilderness and uh, John the writer used an Isaiah 40 reference to talk about coming out of the wilderness. Um, yeah. And this is in Isaiah 40, verse 9. Um, we most recently learned that the origins of gospel or good news comes from that verse. And it says, get yourself up high on a mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, yeah. do not fear. And this is the important part. Say to the cities of Judah, quote, here is your God. And so the rabbis were saying that this good news that is returning or will return since they wrote this, you know, uh, previously is that God is going to return to the created world. He's going to reunite himself with his people. He's going to yeah. restore things. And the reason why it got changed from, you know, here is your God to kingdom is that they were so reverent over God's name that they didn't even want to say it in that that regard and so they they wrote a targum which is a paraphrase of the hebrew scriptures so they took here is your god and they retranslated that into the kingdom of your god is revealed or the kingdom of heaven is revealed yeah. and the, the reason i say all that is just to show if what everything is jesus jesus is doing is meant to give a picture of the kingdom we can have that picture in our mind oh the kingdom means that you know, here is here is the here is our God. Like here is you know the Creator of the universe returning to our yeah. reality to restore things. Like 
that's just I think that's a cool little nugget to add in your arsenal as you're going oh. through Jesus's miracles. Yeah. If only we could somehow relate every cool thing. But there's just too many and we don't know them all. Yeah. But that ah oh, that is so awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's as if there, there's a sense in which, and of course, yeah, we believe that Jesus is God, uh, for sure. Uh, but it's, it's as if in all of this, you know, this is God himself returning and, and fulfilling his promises. So great. Yeah. Ah, so great. Yeah. Okay. So in the text, what's funny is after all of this, John adds that one little line, and his disciples believed in him. Well, I mean, didn't they kind of sort of already, or are they believing something new and different about him? I mean, what what does that even mean? And then we're going to find out this isn't the last time that we're going to hear something like, and his disciples believed in him. So it doesn't even seem to be a a once for all kind of thing. It's, It's very interesting. Now, if we could point back to... Hey, did the disciples really know that Jesus had done this miracle? Well, now here's your evidence that, yeah, they really did, right? Um, but I don't know. I don't know if we should take this as he believes, they believed something new and different about him. Like, oh, we thought he was an awesome teacher before. Now we think he's the king, the long way, maybe. Or is this some sort of confirmation or affirmation of things that they already believe? Uh, maybe. And we're not really sure, and I think as we continue, it's not going to be much clearer. So, uh, the good news is, I think, for them, is that they did believe. So, you know. But it gives it it a sense that it's much more dynamic than maybe we treat it as with the disciples, that, you know, there is an ongoing tension or struggle with these revelations they were receiving about Jesus and how they were dealing with that. Exactly right. And does that not sort of relate to our lives? I mean, I think those are very encouraging things to see. Yeah. Because we have our times, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Uh, now, we're, we're kind of sort of finishing up a section, although I don't know that we'll necessarily finish the podcast here. Uh, verse 12, it says, After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples And they stayed there for a few days. Okay, so, uh, first of all, he is Jesus. He went down to Capernaum. Uh, And then, uh, just think for a second, we've got Mary, Jesus. They're heading down for the next few days. So, if you think about John's little storytelling here, that pretty much represents the first week of Jesus' ministry, right? But, Mary and Jesus aren't alone. His disciples go, and his brothers and I'm just, I'm going to make this point uh, along with, uh, let's see, I've got these list of Matthew 12, 46, Matthew 13, 55, Mark 6, 3, and there are others, less clear, but others. It seems abundantly clear that Jesus had brothers and sisters, and yet we still have this debate that rages you know, in the Christian community at large, mm. uh, that some some actually think he was a, a lone child, That's right? It's kind of, I don't know. Yeah, it's just, it's very, uh, let's just say it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> let's stop there. Yeah, sorry. 
Yeah, well, you know. Uh, um, so let's, uh, let's keep going in the text, though. Uh, John chapter 2, verse 13 says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. All right, this one actually poses a little bit of difficulty for us as well, but let's go ahead with it. Number one, let's talk about the Passover. First of all, uh, so the, the Jews in their annual calendar, if we could think of it that way, they had different appointed times. They call, we, we call them festivals, okay? Now, of these times, three of them were special in that they were pilgrimage festivals. So what that meant was, whether you were somewhere within the land of Israel, or even some outside the land, although it wasn't required for them, some still did travel. If you were inside the land of Israel, it was pretty much required. You had to make the pilgrimage back to Jerusalem, the place that God had chosen, and celebrate this, these festivals, three of them. Passover was one of these, and on the calendar, it's the first one, right? So, what this does, if nothing else, it at least lets us know, hey, it's springtime. Passover, the way we would relate to it, it was uh, very close to Easter. Uh, you know how Easter kind of moves around every year? Mm-hmm. And part of that is because they're, they're actually associating that with Passover. So, that's kind of interesting. Uh, And you can see more about the Passover if you're interested. Go back to the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verses 1 through 28 is a really good block on it. It's not that that's the only thing you'll ever see, but that's a really good one. But then it says that, okay, so the Passover of the Jews is at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It's kind of weird. They make it sound like Jesus went by himself. Now, it's, it's difficult because we try very hard to, okay, what is the text telling us? It must mean something, right? We're always trying to dig in. But at the same time, we kind of go, okay, but it's a pilgrimage festival. Everybody would have been going. I mean, for sure, the men. But because it's Passover and there's this whole tradition of the meal and the stories of the Exodus and all of that stuff, whole families would have been going. So the text reads a little bit odd right there. So we don't know if they're trying to say he traveled alone or but it's hard to know, but it seems super unlikely that he actually went by himself. But anyway, that's what the text says. As we continue to read through the story, uh, we're going to find out the disciples were definitely there and with him. Um, so anyway, just thought I'd point it out in case people are, you know, fixated on some little bit of the text. Yeah, well, you know, there it is. It's kind of weird, right? But now I got to address another thing. So Samuel, we've been talking about when we're in the book of John, he uses this phrase, the Jews. And we said, well, what does John mean when he says that? Do you remember any of the things that we talked about there? Oh no, I'm drawing a blank here. Uh, well, that's that's okay, because I would too. When John was talking about the Jews, when we were first talking about it, we said, hey, John has this habit of referring to the Jews as the leadership back in Jerusalem. Oh, yeah. And we're sticking by that. It's true. Many times when John is talking about the Jews, that's what he means. 
He doesn't always mean that. In fact, I think we even offered a, a, another alternative just at that point we were talking about it. But to get to the point here, we can't just take that and plug it in everywhere. That, that isn't going to be right either. So, so we have to be very careful in how John's using his language and try to make sense of it in its context. Now, some, they're going to look at this and they're going to go, the Passover of the Jews. And, and they see in that phrase, it's almost like a code that John is separating himself from any kind of Judaism, right? That he is... John has somehow left his Judaism, and he's only a Christian, and so he's talking about these things, but he's, he's trying to keep them separate from himself. I think that is a big mistake. That's it, just a big mistake. We have seen John use the phrase, the Jews, kind of in that, that pejorative way before, and obviously that doesn't make any sense here. It wasn't the Passover of the leadership in Jerusalem. That's, that doesn't make sense. But this, I think, in context, we can just understand it just kind of in its plain sense. It's more descriptive or informative. It's, it's like saying this was the Passover for all Jews. Or you might just say uh, the Jewish Passover was at hand. Or you, you see what I'm saying? It's just there's no real intent behind this one other than to say, hey, we're in the space of Judaism. So this Passover of the Jews was at hand. And most importantly, John's bringing it up and specifically pointing out that Jesus is being faithful to participate. Yeah. That's that's the big one. Yeah. Yeah. You can you can try to plug all those things in whatever you want, but when you get to the end of it, you're still left with, yeah, but but the point of the sentence that Jesus is faithfully participating in this Jewish festival, mm-hmm. appointed time, right? Very, very important. Do not lose sight of that. And then, you know, maybe another point just to throw that out there is notice how John was accounting the days of the first week of Jesus's ministry. What did they all lead to? The Passover. Oh, Yeah. And I don't think John was doing that by accident. I think he was telling of those days because it was it was leading text, if you will. It was leading you to Jesus going to the Passover. So it's kind of a neat thing. But now, oh boy, this gets kind of I don't know. Think we could kind of scary. Think, think we can do it? <laughs> we could do it. We got time. Here we go. Verse fourteen. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Okay, so there's a lot going on here. Number one, this story appears in all four Gospels. However, in the other three Gospels, it appears much later in the story. So, you're kind of left with, well, either Jesus did this more than once, or 
people who are writing their gospels, they're, they're placing the stories strategically for their own purposes. Now, it could be either. I happen to think that it's more along the lines of, yeah, whoever's doing the writing, they're putting the stories where they want them because it suits their purposes. Number two, this whip of chords. We're going to try to try to make this picture a little clearer for people. First of all, could we just stop for a second and note he took the time to make one. It doesn't say he picked one up that was laying on the ground. It says, and making a whip of cords. Okay. Now, okay. Could it have been that he just grabbed a bunch of loose things and, and just, you know, had a bundle in his hand and used them like a whip? Okay, maybe. Could it be that he was kind of, I don't know what the proper term is, but braiding them or interlacing them or whatever and, and you know, wrapping this end and do it? Maybe. I don't know. But he's making a whip of cords. And then what is this whip of cords? It, it, this was a common thing. Whenever you had animals, notice it said they had oxen and sheep. Well, they used a whip of cords to drive the animals, to get them to go the direction they wanted them to go. So it wasn't like Jesus was doing anything particularly out of the ordinary, at least in terms of, you know, this is something that you do when you want to drive animals. So he makes a whip of cords and he's driving, it says he drives them all out of the temple. Well, you know, you could get an image in your head where, you know, Jesus is like whipping people. Get out of my father's house, right? Okay, I think that's the wrong image. I don't think that's what's going on. I think the whip of cords is for the animals. And hey, if you were at the temple with some oxen and sheep and somebody started driving them away, what would you do? Well, I would want something to help me steer animals of that size. Sure, but if, if they were your oxen and sheep... You're going to go after them. I can't lose these. These things are valuable. So when we see drive them all out, it doesn't necessarily mean he's got to be using the whip on everybody and everything. He could have been using that on the animals. And that in turn was driving the people with it. And, you know, that kind of stuff. Point is, don't get this weird image in your head where Jesus is like literally just going after people with this whip. Think of it more along the lines of, hey, he's getting the job done. He knows he needs a little whip. He knows that that's going to work on the animals. The animals are used to it. Everybody knows what it's for. He's doing that. He's, he's finding the way to get them out of his father's house. And no matter how you slice it, this is bold, 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 because he's driving away people's property. He's throwing their money on the ground. He's overturning tables. He may or may not have used a whip for that. I don't know. But, uh oh, Samuel, taking you back to the 70s, he probably looked like a wild and crazy guy. <laughs> Anything? Nothing? Uh, Steve Martin? No, no. All right. No. Yeah, just trying. He probably looked pretty wild and pretty crazy. But I want to stop for a second. And say, now, so here you've got, you've got all these people in the temple. And, okay, so it's in like the outer courts, right? But there's animals and people changing money and the birds, and they're doing all this stuff, and Jesus doesn't like it. He feels like it's messing up the temple area. He's calling his father's house a house of trade. But let's, 
Again, let's slow down a little bit. And we're going to go back to some example in the Old Testament, back in the Torah, actually. Now, this one, uh, what I'm going to read from, this happens to be an example about the tithe, but I'm, I'm just using it to show you that it wasn't completely out of line for these people to be around and to be doing what they're doing. So let, let's read this. Um, Samuel, go back to Deuteronomy 14, chapters 24 through 26, and read that. Sure. And if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. Yeah. Now, does that not sound like, hey, when I get up to Jerusalem, I'm going to be able to buy animals with the money. I'm going to be able to buy all, all this stuff, right? Notice it even says oxen or sheep. Yeah. Now, I'm bringing this up. I, I understand that it is not a perfect example because I, I went and grabbed the one about the tithe because it was so specific. I love the detail in it. But notice how the, the, the groundwork, sort of the, the seeds of this whole idea are right there in the scripture. God is the one who made it up. So we shouldn't look at these people like as if even doing this at all was just the, the worst idea ever. Oh, those horrible Israelites. Well, it's not quite like that, but it, it got twisted. It had become twisted. It, this place, it had, for all practical purposes, it had turned into a, a marketplace. And that wasn't, that wasn't quite what God had in mind. And you can even imagine, think about it. I got people coming from far away. They don't have animals to sacrifice with, but they brought money, and I do have animals they could sacrifice with. Do you think there's any chance the price may have gone up slightly? A wee bit. Yeah, yeah, there may have been prowse, uh, prowse, <laughs> price gouging going on. We don't know all that had happened, but the point is, it had gotten out of whack. Jesus is looking at this. And he's seeing that it's out of balance. It, it's even though it may have had its seeds in the Torah, it 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 had far exceeded whatever it was supposed to be. And so Jesus is upset because the temple is supposed to be a house of prayer for all peoples. And you know that Gentiles can't go into the temple, so any area that they would have had access to. It's just this big, noisy, awful, smelly marketplace. How are they going to be able to really join in in any sense in, in the midst of all that, right? So it was, really, it was really messing everything up. But Jesus, it was a big deal to him. And uh, just if you wanted to see some, some other uh, sections of Scripture that sort of relate to this, you can go look at Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 and 13. Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 17, or Luke chapter 19, verses 45 and 46. Those would be your relative verses. 
So I know that's a lot. I think we're, you know what? The next verse totally relates to what we just said, but I think we're going to stop here because I think it'll be a good way for us to sort of pick up the story because it relates so well. So I think we should cut it. Do you mind if I add in just one more little thing? No, do it. Before we stop. Um, Everything you said is great. Um, I want to go back to the point about the whip of cords and that um, Jesus would not have, like we should get that picture out of our minds that he was using that to whip people. Um, I want to give a plug first. There is an app on your phone that you can download called the Mitzvot app. app. M-I-T-Z-V-O-T. And every day it'll send you a notification uh, in kind of common language giving you one one commandment from the Torah each day and then the reference for you to read and stuff. It's really cool, but the reason I bring that up is because I remember one of the notifications I got a few weeks ago in Leviticus 19, and the app had said, like, uh, to love your fellow countrymen or to love your fellow Israelite. And uh. I'm just going to read a few of these verses in Leviticus 19. And okay. uh, Paul or listeners, you think of, of these things and see if uh, <laughs> whipping your fellow countrymen has any place in the language evoked here. So <laughs> uh, Leviticus 19, okay, verse 13, you shall not oppress your neighbor. Uh, let's see, verse 15, you shall not, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defend the great. Uh, let's see. Oh, verse 16. Uh, you are to not act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Verse 17. Ooh. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall ah. not incur sin because of him. You shall not take yeah. vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. I am the Lord. So... I just, uh, those verses came up in that app, and it's like, if if he was, if Jesus was perfectly obedient, there's no way that he could have done that, because he, that that does not show love and honor to your countrymen. Right. Yeah, that's a good one. I've never heard of that app. That sounds kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. We all get a picture of Jesus in our head. We all get a picture of God. We get a picture of so many things. Sometimes it's good just to stop and say, does that make sense yeah and maybe we reform that picture absolutely it's good yeah all right i think we're done okie dokie thank you for listening to the okie dokie most podcast please don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you are notified when our episodes release on sunday nights at 7 p.m eastern time so that you never miss an episode our podcast is now available wherever podcasts are found so please make sure you check us out on your electronic device. You can also visit us on our official website at www.okidokimos.com for more information or to listen online. And finally, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please feel free to send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you soon.